Welcome to Women on the Line, a community radio national women's current affairs program produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Emma Hart. And, you know, just this whole attitude deep down that um, any or all of LGBTI people can just be used as a political football, as clickbait and ratings points, as moral footballs. You know, that's really where it starts from in the first place, this whole idea that any or all of LGBTI are somehow less than equal and can be used in those ways. So it's just totally, it is utterly atrocious. That's Sally Goldner from Transgender Victoria speaking about the postal plebiscite on marriage equality. This week on Women on the Line, we're going to be looking at the possible postal plebiscite, which at the time of making this episode was being pushed forward by the federal government, but is currently subject to not one, but two separate High Court challenges. First, we'll speak with Felicity Marlowe, the convener of Rainbow Families Victoria, who is also a litigant in one of the High Court challenges against the postal plebiscite. Then we'll hear from Sally Goldner about how the potential postal plebiscite is affecting the trans community. Before we get started, to disclose my own interest here, I'm a queer person with some personal reservations about marriage, and I also updated my electoral enrolment details last week. If the postal plebiscite does come to pass, I'll be supporting whatever best furthers LGBTIQ rights. Listeners should also be aware that this episode of Women on the Line contains discussion of mental health and discrimination. I'm Felicity Marlow. I'm the convener of Rainbow Families Victoria and personally also a litigant in the High Court challenge against the postal vote. So I thought to begin, could you provide a bit of background to the current public discussion around the marriage equality plebiscite or postal survey and we can go from there? Well, clearly the government thought they'd have a second go at their failed policy of holding a plebiscite of some sort to achieve marriage equality in Australia. Many of us campaigned hard last year to nip that whole plebiscite idea in the bud. From Rainbow Families Victoria's point of view, we joined up with some activists from Rainbow Families New South Wales and the ACT and took our families and kids up to Canberra in September last year for a series of meetings across the political spectrum to really push home the damage issues that we thought would plebiscite um, or a public debate and public campaign about a plebiscite would have on our families and our children and LGBTI young people. So while we were really successful then, unfortunately, what we've had this year is a few um, yeah, other ministers coming up with new ideas on how to have a plebiscite on marriage equality, which started in March with Minister Dutton who decided that perhaps we should just explore the idea of a postal plebiscite, um, which is almost worse in a way because it's not just an eight-week campaign, but it has so many issues around how many people would be able to get their ballot in and all that kind of thing. So given that the postal plebiscite reared its ugly head again, we also went up back up to Canberra last week to try and put the brakes on that, but it sort of run away, <laughs> run away from us and... It looks like this is the next favourite option for the government in terms of resolving marriage equality. Mm-hmm. And what is the current situation with the postal survey? Where, where are we at right now? At the moment, there are two high court legal challenges that are campaigning or are challenging the validity of the decision to hold a postal plebiscite. They include arguments around whether or not the government can appropriate funds to hold a plebiscite when it's not 
technically in the budget and a whole lot of other sort of technical and constitutional arguments surrounding the use of the Bureau of Statistics and the way in which decisions have been made by this federal government pertaining to how they might organise the postal plebiscite. So that's really exciting because if we're successful in the High Court, that could totally put the brakes on the plebiscite. It doesn't resolve the question on how we achieve marriage equality in the near future, but what it does do is resolve the question of whether or not a postal plebiscite is a valid way to go forward. So sort of where it's at at the moment. One thing the government did have to do last week at our first High Court directions hearing was give the court an undertaking they wouldn't print or distribute ballot papers until September the 12th, which is the first day that they'd indicated. So that's really positive. It means that they can't spend our taxpayers' money on printing those things and getting them all ready to be sent out until we get through the High Court challenge on September 5th and 6th. And... I thought perhaps maybe we could tease out some of the main issues around why a plebiscite and especially a postal plebiscite is uh, not a very good idea. You, you touched on some things before. Well, if you start with the postal plebiscite idea, I mean, the very fact that it's non-binding and voluntary, they're pretty big ticket items about why it's not a valid way to ascertain any sort of direction the government would like to get from the Australian public about where it should go on marriage equality. The secondary kind of issues that I think actually are quite important around why the postal ballot is not a great idea is that it disenfranchises silent voters or silent electors. So these are people like um, doctors or psychologists or even, for example, politicians who don't have their name on the electoral roll. So, for example, I've spoken to some lesbian mums that are both psychologists and they're silent electors because they work as psychologists in the community and they don't want people to know where they live. But this will now potentially mean that they don't get a ballot sent to their house because there's no address listed against their name. So that's pretty disheartening. The second issue are things like um, accessibility. So for people who have issues around reading or visual concerns, like they will have to find someone who can read and explain what the poster ballot is and usually if you were at a ballot box on a say federal election day you'd be able to ask for that support. We're also concerned about things like will ballots get delivered to people that live in blocks of flats or in nursing homes or accommodation services. How are people going to make sure that they get their ballot delivered to them and that it doesn't get screwed away by someone else or lost or stolen? These are kind of the problems it's just sort of endless, really. And the third issue for us, really, is the public campaign associated with any plebiscite and even a postal plebiscite. Anyone who's ever gone through a federal election cycle um, would probably remember that it's sort of an endless barrage of flyers, posters and ads on the telly, ads in newspapers, on social media. And that's usually just for a broad range of issues for different parties or independents running for an election. But if you think about all of that energy, money and time and promotion and marketing and advertising just being put into one question on one issue that impacts one particular minority group in Australia, then it starts to amplify, I guess, just how hard it's going to be for members of the LGBTIQ community, for our children, the young LGBTI people who are isolated, for people who aren't out in their workplaces or communities to have to see all of this information out there and people just being publicly given the option to debate 
this issue because the government's decided that that's the best way forward and that's what we're really concerned about, people's mental health and wellbeing and particularly from Rainbow Family's point of view, I guess the impact that might have on our children and also young LGBTI kids as well. Women on the line. Maybe, I'm not sure what you can speak about as a litigant in the current High Court challenge, but would it be possible to summarise the main argument you're taking to the High Court against the Postal Survey? So those, um, the arguments are on public record. They're the arguments around the way the government appropriated the funds. So where are they getting this $122 million from? There's some arguments around the way in which the different bodies that are authorised to run elections or surveys, such as the Australian Bureau of Statistics, whether or not they're the appropriate government department to run these things. And there's a myriad, like I said earlier, of different constitutional arguments about why this is not an appropriate way for the government to move on this particular issue. My role, I guess, as a litigant in our court case alongside Andrew Wilkie and Shelley Argent from Key Flag Australia is really just to highlight the impacts and concerns I have as a lesbian mum of any kind of hate speech or vilification that my children will be subject to by having ads that question our role as parents, questioning whether or not their family is an appropriate family or a normal family, questioning whether Sarah, my partner and I are good parents or deserve to be parents. In some ways, I guess that these arguments are trying to highlight the fact that for a long time, anti-marriage equality campaigners have said that marriage is equitable to family and that children deserve a mother and a father who are biologically related to them and preferably married. And we know that that will be a key plank in the argument against anti-marriage equality. So I guess my role as a litigant is to highlight that you know that ship has sailed like in every state and territory there are laws now that allow lesbian single women gay men access to either um, artificial insemination or IVF in some cases adoption in all nearly all cases we're able to foster um, there's different forms of altruistic surrogacy and support services around so that LGBTIQ people can be parents so we've always had kids whether it's there was a law that backed that up or made it easy for us or not. Our kids are in every community across Australia. So really, we think it's a bit of a moot point. But personally, I just wanted to be able to stand up and say, I don't want to have flyers delivered to my house. I don't want there to be banners saying that my family and my kids deserve a better family than the one that they've got as I take them to school every day. So that's kind of why I got involved, because I think there's a lot of personal stories and personal concerns about what impact having all of this public debate will have on people. Mm. Yes, and it does seem to be. I, I think there are some, as you're saying, like very serious, almost moral implications for having a vote around civil rights like this in a situation where it actually isn't necessitated by the current parliamentary system um, to change the current legal situation. Um, to move forward, what are the likely outcomes from here in terms of what could happen? If the High Court challenge fails and in the end we do have ballots sent to our House on September the 12th, what we really need to do is encourage people, first of all, A, to check their enrolment and enrol by the 24th of August, but B, soon as you get your ballot, fill it in, take it to the post office and get it done and then spend the rest of the eight weeks encouraging friends, workmates, 
parents at school, friends you go out for coffee with, people in your community, in your church, in wherever, to fill their ballot papers in and mail them back as soon as possible. When you think about all of the kind of junk mail and letters and bills and things that you accumulate at home, <laughs> like, you know, and you take all your stuff out of the letterbox and you just pile it up on the kitchen table and think, I'll get to that later. We really don't want people to get to the end of October, early November going, oh, shivers, I haven't voted yet. The most important thing people can do is vote within the first two or three days of receiving their ballot while it's fresh in their mind, get it done, then spend the rest of their time between September and November the 7th supporting and encouraging friends, family, co-workers, sports friends, whatever it is, to fill in their ballot and get it back as soon as possible. We're also going to need to use a lot of that time between September and November encouraging some self-care in our communities. So if you know any LGBTIQ people or if you know rainbow families or young LGBTI people or older LGBTI people that perhaps are isolated, go around, check on them, have them over for a potluck dinner, go for a walk in a park, just look after everybody because we know that the public campaign, the advertising, the media, the constant discussion is going to be quite taxing on people's mental health and well-being. Mm. And I wanted to ask you as well, marriage equality has become a really pressing issue for the LGBTIQ community through the hard work of many people. However, there are also other important issues affecting the welfare of members of the community as well, which are not receiving the same attention. I mean, why, why do you think that is? Absolutely. Like, I think we've got so many other issues that we really need to be working on. And it's a credit to some of the fantastic organisations like Transgender Victoria and BioAlliance and organisation Intersex International that they've kept on government's agendas at a state and federal level issues such as intersex infants and the surgery that's provided to them in hospitals and and the medicalisation of intersex young people, which needs to be stopped. We've got issues around trans and gender diverse people in workplaces, in our criminal justice system that we need to address. We've got issues around even simple things like how does the government implement the great moves and law reforms it makes around adoption or changing signifiers for gender on forms across Victoria or nationally. I mean, there's a whole range of issues that really impact on people's day-to-day lives that are above and beyond what marriage equality will offer. And for some of us, marriage equality has just become the bottleneck kind of issue because it's received so much federal and national and international attention. But for me personally, I see it actually as a way to start conversations with people about things like family diversity, that kids can come from families of all different shapes and sizes, that their lives and their families are just as ordinary and as boring and as difficult as everybody else's. And that we need to encourage, like, turn some of the issues that will come to light through the No campaign into really positive stories of resilience and hope for LGBTI young people out there that are looking at this and looking to the elders in their community to support. So in some ways, it's a big advertisement for the diversity and inclusion of LGBTIQ people across all communities. Um, I think it's a really positive conversation and I hope that we can use some of the debate and time to highlight the issues that are faced by trans and gender diverse people, by intersex people, by the LGBTI community at large as well, on more local levels. On community radio around Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. This week, we're bringing you coverage of the postal plebiscite for marriage equality. 
You were just listening to Felicity Marlowe of Rainbow Families Victoria, who is also a litigant in one of the High Court challenges against the postal plebiscite. Next, we'll hear from Sally Goldner from Transgender Victoria. I'm Sally Goldner from Transgender Victoria, also involved in Bisexual Alliance Victoria and Trans Family. So how would you say the current public discussion around the plebiscite or postal survey is affecting trans people? It's certainly affecting trans people in a very negative way in the time um, since the announcement of the postal survey. We've had you know, discussion amongst community groups and there's been already a huge level of increasing calls to totally unfunded services like support groups that you know shows that people are really being very triggered if you like by the debate that is happening and it's really hurting a lot of people it's recreating trauma and so it's really not um you know it's just being totally it's just totally damaging no question Mm -hmm. yeah and especially to uh, the segment of the population that has comparatively quite poor mental health outcomes anyway compared to the rest of even the um, GLBTIQ community? I'm so glad you raised that because, yeah, I mean, the LGBTI is not, we'll say, homogenous, but yes, life is somewhat better now um, for gays and lesbians, but then we go further down, as much as I hate to use this sort of language, go down the list, Um, binary trans, then non-binary trans, and then bisexual I don't want to speak for intersex, but I imagine it's somewhat similar. And, you know, since the announcement of the postal vote, one group alone, who normally get five to ten inquiries a week, had 12 inquiries over the weekend alone. And so, yeah, the the mental health, because of the lifelong trauma, the negativity, including, we'll say, abandonment, rejection and stigma by society is huge and it doesn't just go away at the night. So yeah, it's a huge issue and impacting massively on, you know, in, we'll say, worse proportions for trans and gender diverse, but also for bi people as well. Mm -hmm. And what do you feel the impact of the postal survey would have on the trans community if it goes ahead? Oh, look, it would be disastrous. We saw throughout last year the of constant issues that came up during the talk of the more formal plebiscites, the attacks on safe schools. People were just being absolutely psychologically you know, assaulted by this. In addition to discussing the human cost of the politicking around this issue on the part of the government, I asked Sally if there were any trans-specific barriers in terms of relationship recognition under the current legal framework. So... The current legal framework, to be a little more detailed than standard definitions, is marriage between two people, one who at the time of the marriage has an M on their birth certificate, one who has an F. So there's two implications that come out of that, just the M and F. There are two of the Australia's states and territories, being ACT and South Australia, allow for um, people to have something else on their birth certificate. So right now, they can't marry anyone at all, and that's right now. And so this also leads to how um, things are going to be worded in any questions and or legislation, that it has to be something like regardless of gender, not just, say, two men or two women, otherwise those people will continue to be left out. So 
So there's that issue, which also affects a few intersex people as well for more reports. And Tony Briffer, who's well known, has spoken about the effects on Tony's life about that. Um, the other situation, though, is the more documented one, colloquially called forced trans divorce. So this is where a couple marry as M&F quite legally and then one person says, look, I need to be my true self. The partner says, oh, you know, I'm staying with you. We'll work it out. And so they go, they manage to stick together and then person will say, under whatever state legislative regime, rocks up to birth, deaths and marriages and is told, sorry, no, can't change your birth certificate until you're divorced because we can't have two Fs or two Ms in a marriage. And this happens and many partners are saying, I don't want to see my partner distressed by... Um, having a document being a birth certificate that's inaccurate. So they then have to go through the legal cost and stress of a divorce that they don't really want to go through. So quite appalling. Um, the interesting thing is on that one, though, two states and territories, again, South Australia and ACT, have got to change their state laws to get around that. So it's really quite sad that the other states and territories, and it's probably not the fault of the relevant birth, deaths and marriages department, they're just you know, doing the bureaucratic thing. But this is another reason why we've got to get the federal law changed. So it is just, we'll say, two legally consenting non-related adults. And that way, you know, then the states and territories would have no reason to have any laws that um, had this situation happening. So, yeah, it's a really difficult thing. It put, puts stress on relationships that otherwise work. And, you know, puts and it's financial discrimination in terms of any legal cost if they do divorce. But if they don't, the trans person's stuck with a birth certificate that isn't accurate, which, you know, can create issues on, um, on down the track in terms of, say, getting police checks or working with children checks for work or volunteering um, because documents then aren't consistent across, say, birth certificate, passport and all the rest. What difference do you feel would the passing of marriage equality legislation make to trans people? I mean, we just discussed a scenario around that. It would obviously be helpful, but the honest answer is what comes up for trans people, if I have to put it into very short dot points, elevator speech headings, yes, legal documentation is one, and this would probably be a little bit of an assist for the other six states and territories, including Victoria, to reform birth certificates so that they were um, self-based on affirmed identity and not surgery. So that's one issue. The others that always come up are healthcare, both inclusive healthcare in a generalist sense, but also specialist issues such as surgery costs for adults and the family court process for minors in relation to stage two adult hormone medications. Um, legal and social discrimination apart from New South Wales Gender Centre and the ACT Gender Centre. There's no trans peer-funded projects on an ongoing basis and also documents healthcare. Um, there are still some other laws that need changing such as, sure, ones that affect lots of groups such as religious exemptions but also sport exemptions that affect trans and intersex people that are highly discriminatory and sexist. And um, whilst this would therefore be a help, there's still a heck of a long way to go to reduce barriers and get laws out that are just plain biased. Mm. There does seem to be a really complex raft of legal changes that really urgently need to take place. And yeah. when I was putting together the material for this 
conversations earlier, the timeline on some of the legal wins that have occurred for trans people recently, they're all so recent. So we were talking about the ACT in South Australia, but the yeah. ACT only allowed uh, transgender people to change the sex on their birth certificates without medical intervention in 2014. And for South yep. Australia, that was last year, 2016. So That's right. And unfortunately, Victoria um, missed out because it failed by one vote in the upper house. So we're pretty much stuck until the next parliament. And that's, of course, on the assumption that Labor and all Labor and Greens would have a majority in the lower house for starters, yeah. Mm. Um, it feels like quite a crucial time if these changes are starting to come through. Yeah, yeah, it is a crucial time. And I think, I suppose now, you know, the focus is on getting marriage equality done, but there then has to be, you know, yes, um, I look forward, you know, regardless of what one says about what, whatever my personal thoughts might be, the fact that some people other than male or female want to marry, that of course needs to be their right and it seems that that's where the focus is and sure, let's get it done, let's have a big party and recover from the hangover, but we're going to have to get back up, back up and going again very quickly because, you know, there is a huge level of inequity within the LGBTI community, sure, for trans and gender diverse, but... I do feel that bi people are still being erased a lot and even in a state like Victoria, which does have a good state government, which has been somewhat of a buffer against what's been going on federally, um, you know, the state government can't point to one bi specific initiative or outcome that it started on and that's a real worry as well and so it's all right, let's put in this effort to get this done take the time out to recover a bit, but then get moving very quickly. And it's really got to be on everything after that. I don't really think we can go through this scenario again where we just do one issue and leave people behind. Mm. Finally, just to, before we finish up, I wanted to ask you, Sally, in terms of your own personal experiences, as an experienced activist and member of the LGBTIQ community, how have you seen public discussion around especially trans issues change in your lifetime? And what kind of context does that put the current public discussion in for you? I think, that, look, there obviously has been a change as someone who came out in 1995 and started getting really involved in 1998. Yes, things have changed to some extent legally and socially. And I think the critical factor is there are more people who are allies or at least, let's say, have gone from will say in simple terms, from negative to neutral. The problem, I suppose, in a way, is that those who are still opposing are the really shrill voices, if you like, the, you know, let's be most well name names, the Christian lobby, the Jermaine Greer types, you know, to use her as a straw case, um, the, the fact that, as I mentioned earlier, that right-wing media think they can just use trans issues as a beat-up, that sort of thing. You know, it does seem like it's this loud, shrill voice at the end. So there has been progress, and we things went, was almost, you might say, a golden era for trans for 2012 to 2015. And then, of course, last year the backlash started with the preconceived attack on safe schools, um, in particular where trans was the focus. And in, in a way, that, that, of course, has mixed messages. Trans people um, were picked out and intersex erroneously because it was assumed that was gender as well. Pretty much these extreme types have given up on gay and lesbian, although they never would say that. But now we're in the firing line. But I think if there's still an issue, there's still a tendency which we've got to raise for some elements of gay and lesbian to 
sell out groups like Trans and Buy, which I'll talk for directly, and I think that's got to stop. You know, it does come back to that old, um, that German philosopher who talked about, you know, first they came for, well, we've all got to stick together, and then that goes to groups which I can't identify with directly, but it also covers people of colour, um, people on the autism spectrum and so on. We can't afford to let anyone get left behind. That was Sally Goldner from Transgender Victoria discussing the postal plebiscite for marriage equality. If you're an LGBTIQ person and you're feeling distressed by the plebiscite or the broader marriage equality debate, for support and referral you can call QLIFE on 1800 184 527 between 3pm and midnight in your state or territory or visit www.qlife.org.au. that's all for Women on the Line today. Women on the Line is a community radio national women's current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the community radio network. We greatly appreciate financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so send us an email to womenontheline at gmail.com or phone 3CR on 03 9419 Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. The theme music for Women on the Line is Slideshow at Free University by La Tigre. I'm Emma Hart. Hope you can tune in again next time. Thank you.